Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, a team based at the Morehouse School of Medicine has helped develop a multilingual mobile app. Now, it's designed for at-risk groups to easily access information and services about COVID-19 vaccines, testing sites, and other community resources. So we'll have that conversation coming up in a moment. And also, Fulton County is expanding its emergency rental assistance program. This is all part of our continuing coverage of Atlanta, not only Atlanta, but Georgia and the rest of the nation's what they call a housing crisis with evictions. Important community conversations coming up. But first this, as you just heard on NPR, the U.S. Department of Justice is launching a statewide civil investigation into Georgia's state prisons. Now, in a press telebriefing earlier today, officials with the DOJ said the probe focuses on whether or not the civil rights of incarcerated people are subjected to what the DOJ cites as a pattern or practice of constitutional violations. Christian Clark is Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division within the DOJ. This investigation will be comprehensive, but will focus on harm to prisoners resulting from prisoner-on-prisoner violence. We are also investigating sexual abuse of gay, lesbian, and transgender prisoners. Clark went on to say the investigation is more than just verifying these violations. Our investigations have been successful at identifying not only whether systemic constitutional violations are occurring, but also the root causes of any such violations so that those causes can be fixed and the violations can stop. Closer Look reached out to Georgia's Department of Corrections for a statement, but as of airtime in this 1 p.m. edition of Closer Look, has yet to receive a response. In other news, Atlanta-based MailChimp, the digital marketing and email marketing service with the little chimpanzee's logo, is being acquired by Intuit. You know, the other makers of products such as TurboTax, QuickBooks, Mint, and Credit Karma. In a statement from MailChimp CEO Ben Chestnut, he says the company he co-founded 20 years ago will still be able to offer more what they call personalized support and onboarding, expand MailChimp's international footprint, and scale teams to innovate faster and deliver the solutions folks want and need. The acquisition price, $12 billion. A note of disclosure, MailChimp is an underwriter of WABE. And finally... Get your resumes in order. Amazon is hiring. The tech giant announcing today that they plan to fill jobs here in the Atlanta region. And tomorrow, Amazon will host what they say is America's biggest recruiting and training event with tens of thousands of corporate tech and jobs available. Now, we'll have more on what those jobs are on tomorrow's program. You're listening to Closer Look. 
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The National COVID-19 Resiliency Network, or NCRN, has launched a new mobile app. It is designed to help specific at-risk groups easily access information and services to combat disease in their local communities. Now, NCRN is based in the Morehouse School of Medicine's National Center for Primary Care. And joining me now to talk about this and some other issues is Dr. Dominic Mack. He heads the NCRN. Dr. Mack, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Rose, for having me today. I appreciate you taking the time, but as we begin usually these conversations, I always like to ask people to reflect on, uh, not computer sounds, but I always ask people to reflect on where we are right now um, in this moment. 19 months out from when it was first uh, declared a pandemic. Uh, Your thoughts on where we are now? I think we've made a great deal of progress with the vaccinations, with the awareness, outreach to various groups and also with various treatments like the monoclonal antibodies that are in use now. But we still have a ways to go with the variants, the lack of vaccinations. Um, But I think we've made a lot of progress. From the beginning, and it was slow, but there was such there was so much concern, and obviously understandable to, in terms of those what we call at risk groups. We're talking about the black and brown communities. We're talking about um, communities where, where where they considered low income, or communities that already were were dealing with other inequities. How would you assess as a nation now, as a nation, the addressing not only just from testing to getting vaccines, but now also to getting more folks vaccinated. How would you assess how the nation has been able to do that? I think the efforts have been great. I think the reach has been greater than when we initially started. You look at the vaccination rates, which are in some instances higher among some disproportionately impacted communities than others, than than white populations. So great progress, but also a lot of gaps. Mm-hmm. We're still on um, the morbidity and the mortality, which is happening in our communities are still at a higher rate. Um, we still have some gaps when it comes to the vaccinations. Um, so a little on both sides, but I think the awareness is greater. The vaccination rates are higher. Um, people wearing them uh, maskings in these populations. Um, and right now we're really having some large issues among the white population. So so things are moving along, but we still have some challenges. Well, here in Georgia, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, you're looking at about 45% fully vaccinated. That's according to their COVID-19 dashboard. Um, is that accept? Is that, a, is that, you say we're turning a corner, but when you look at the rest of the states in the nation, and obviously those that, that have, that are hovering at the bottom, 
or in the southern part of the nation. You have some concerns, though, do you? Yeah, we could do much better. And I think that we need continuous efforts to get people to understand the importance of the vaccinations, the importance of the masking. Um, a lot of misinformation remains. And one reason we're here is to help educate the public about the truthful information, which is that vaccinations are working. People who take vaccinations are, are more protected, um, less morbidity, mortality, hospitalizations, and deaths. Also, masking works, social distancing works. And we're still at a point where we still need to be careful from going into large crowds. So I think connecting the public to the proper information, especially disproportionately impacted communities to truthful information is one of the missions that we're on. Well, and, and you know, to you want to be fair, because earlier on, I've had so many conversations with Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, of course, who leads the Morehouse School of Medicine. You all have been on the forefront of that. But when you talk about we're still having this conversation about connecting folks with proper information. How do you do that? Well, we're doing it through the app, which I'm sure we'll discuss further, mm -hmm. but also community efforts, funding, um, and there has been some funding put forth to organizations which are um, connected to communities. And I think we, we need more resources in that area. Um, Community-based organizations and other organizations that connect to these communities are culturally have culturally relevant messaging that can impact. Um, how do we affect the families, the grandmothers, the mothers, the fathers, who affect the children mm -hmm. um, as far as like how they treat this virus, how they respect it, and how we protect ourselves against it. So I think it takes multiple efforts and we can't depend on one source. Uh, we have to take it into our home, home hands locally, um, what we can do uh, within our neighborhoods, within our communities and our families to get the proper message out. Well, Dr. Mack, you're talking about changing someone's mindset if they are hesitant or if they are just adamant that they are not going to get the vaccine. You know, it takes more than just maybe one conversation. So if there's this holistic approach, then how do you go about that? Because you can't change someone's mindset overnight, as you know. No. No. Well, I can give you personal examples as a clinician of distributing or disseminating information, but talking personally to patients and friends, they didn't change their minds initially, but over a period of time, they did. Um, there have been a lot of things that have happened within communities among our friends and those including deaths that have an impact along the way to help change people's minds. So what we have to do is continue to send the message out, but also continue to evaluate the effectiveness of the message. Uh, Reapproach the communities and ask those in the communities, why aren't they taking the va vaccination? Mm -hmm. The reason might be different today than it was um, two or three months ago. For instance, um, a lot of people now, it's just their choice, right? They, they feel that it's my choice. Um, nothing to do with it. People are impacting on the right for me to choose in vaccination. We're hearing that in the disproportionately impacted communities. 
So the methodology that we take is to disseminate messaging, but to retest that, to re-engage the community and ask those questions, focus groups, but just, you know, individually, if you're a clinician, health professional organizations, but just us as human beings, just ask each other, why aren't you taking the message, the, 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 um, the vaccinations, uh, masking, et cetera? Before we get into the app, I, I want to focus on this because it's so important because what you've said and so many other people have said on this program and, and keep saying, not just on this program, but other programs. But what are you what are you telling people? Someone says to you, Dr. Mack, look, I don't trust the vaccine. They made it too quick or, you know, I don't know what's in it. What do you say? What have you been saying? Well, what I try to do is is go into the history. One of the things, let me tell you one of the things I say, Um, especially if you look at parents and you look at our history. Since we've been children, we've been taking vaccinations. Um, If we look back um, when there was polio, measles, mumps, and rubella, chicken pots. We can go back to the 60s and 70s and, and see how those vaccinations, some of those diseases were more prevalent. Mm-hmm. And now today, we take those vaccinations routinely. Mm-hmm. We can go back and look at the evidence of how the flu vaccine has basically helped um, lower deaths and disease within the country over the years, uh, within the last, what, 10 to 20 years with, with, with you know, we've seen a difference with that. So I try to relate to the efficacy of existing vaccinations, which we so trust, and just get an understanding that we're just in the early stage with this. But this, you know, polio was was once like this. Measles was once like this. Chickenpox was once like this. Um, this is the point where we start, these vaccinations have been tested, trusted. Um, we, as a minority organizations, part of this testing. Um, So we've seen that it actually works and that it actually helps to improve the life and prevent COVID-19. And now I'm starting to see that the long COVID are the the long-term effects. So I think it's various ways you approach various people, whether it's with their kids, especially as a clinician or with other adults. Mm -hmm. Um, But People have increased, vaccination rates have increased. People are listening. It is changing. Um, so we continue to try to talk to those who, who who may have some hesitancy. You mentioned evaluating the messaging. Well, then how would you evaluate the messaging from when you all have been on the forefront of this since last year to now within the Morehouse School of Medicine and the surrounding community? Because the community that you serve is all around the Morehouse School of Medicine, primarily. Well, with this initiative, mm-hmm. we, um, the National COVID-19 Resiliency Network, we've worked with over 400 partners all across various communities which have been disproportionately impacted in every state, tribe, and territory um, across this nation, across state, tribes, and territory. So we work with those partners and we get feedback from the individual communities. We mm-hmm. use formative research and scientific methodologies focus groups, surveys, et cetera, but also one-to-one contact and feedback that we get from these organizations, which are grassroots organizations in some instances within the community, on what are the communities saying? For instance, I had, we know with the African-American community, we frequently hear about 
what are the issues? I spoke to someone with the Pacific Island um, community just the other day, and they said that that's one of the things that they're seeing as far as hesitancy now. People just saying their choice, which I spoke to earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing else, but it's just my rights and my choice. So those, so how do you change your messaging for that? So we employ a scientific message mm-hmm. to redevelop the messaging. It may not work um, for everybody, but you continue that um, cycle of research, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that loop, that mm-hmm. research loop, so that you continue to evaluate it, um, distribute it, measure the impact of it, then come back. But some things are not all scientific, we know. Mm-hmm. It just takes that personal touch. And we work with those partners, which is so important to reach out to communities. Well, let's get into the, the app then. Dr. Mack, how did all this come about? Well, this came about, of course, this is some of the work we were already doing at the Mohawk School of Medicine, the National Center for Primary Care, and other centers and institutes and departments. But the Office of Modern Art and Health um, under HHS put out an opportunity to, after COVID has such an impact, to try to solve the problem of overcoming barriers to get communities that were disproportionately impacted into services. So we were awarded this opportunity, um, a three-year opportunity to develop partnerships, um, identify those partners, develop a dissemination platform, um, multicultural language, um, culturally and linguistically appropriate messaging so that we could link communities to COVID-19 related services, vaccine, testing, um, COVID-19 information, et cetera, monitor, evaluate the success of the dissemination methods Mm -hmm. and then disseminate best practices to communities and working hand in hand with the Office of Minority Health, other federal, state, and local agencies, but most importantly, communities who um, have relationships to the populations that are most infected. The voice you hear is Dr. Dominic Mack. Now he heads the National COVID-19 Resiliency Network inside the Morehouse School of Medicine's National Center for Primary Care. Okay, so Dr. Mack, someone goes, they download the app, then what? You can search for information, um, the latest COVID information, such as what's happening with the boosters, et cetera. It's also linked to other sources like NIH, CDC. But also basically there's a symptom checker. Um, You can also search for services, Um, testing services, where the vaccination sites by putting in your address and your zip code, but also mental health services, which are so important during this time. And we're expanding into more social services um, such as the availability of jobs and other things, which we don't have that today, but we look forward to having in the coming months. But in summary, COVID-related services and information that can help around prevention and treatment and the link to those services. Mm-hmm. We're not providing services ourselves, but we're linking to that information, education, and service. And this is services throughout the nation or just in our region? Services throughout the nation, as I stated, tri- um, state, tribes, territories. Uh, we have partners throughout, um, but it links to those services. It's almost like a Google search mm-hmm. where you just, you just put in your address, pick the service you need, and um, it'll give you the locations within your area. Have you downloaded the app yet? Is it working? 
Yes, ma'am. It's on my phone. All right, I'm going to download it right now. What's been the response? How many downloads y'all have? Um, well, we have over 6,000 users now. The app just recently, um, we just got it on the Google app, I think in um, August, uh, late July. We have over 6,000 users. Um, we've touched thousands of other folks through the app. And let me give you the best way to get there is covid-resources.org. And we should COVID-resources.org. note. COVID-resources.org. I'm going to let, let you say that again, Dr. Mack, but we should okay. note this is not just for the phone, right? You can, now, you can download it on, is it just for the phone or can you also download it on a, a Surface or an iPad or something like that? Yes, you can download it. It's in the App Store. Um, it's in the Android store. And also you can reach it by website on your computer. So anywhere you re- reach websites, um, our apps, you can get this, uh, whether it's Android, uh, whether it's iOS. And um, one more time, covid-resources.org. You know, when we started this conversation and you talked about why it was so important to have so many different avenues in terms of not just the messaging, not just evaluating the messaging, but getting people access to the proper information. And I don't need to tell you that there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of information out there that's intentionally put out there that is wrong. How how do you suggest folks be able to maneuver through all of that? Well, one thing is, you know, I would tell people, if they have a clinician or if they've been to a clinician, um, please talk to your provider, your physician, your nurse practitioner, your physician assistant. So a healthcare provider, a health professional. But what if folks don't have, you You know, what if folks don't right. have a, a primary care physician? Where do they turn? They would turn to this app, um, Insern, but also the. you may not, a lot of people don't agree with everything that's been put out, but the scientific information is still posted on those verified, um, certified public, um, I guess, health entities such as CDC and NIH. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have information around any of this, the vaccinations, which is the latest scientific information. Um, and I would say that to everyone, this is science, the development of the new vaccines, the study of diseases, it's science. And there's a a verified scientific process that doesn't work all the time, but it's it's worked most of the time. That's why we have the effective vaccines that we have. And it's working for this from all the studies that we see. So I would say go to those certifiable sites um, for apps, you know, be, be leery of um, any information that you get over the web. So you, you need to ask someone who may be a health professional or someone in your family who you think um, is aware of um, health information and is connected to um, those reliable sources. Dr. But it's a lot of, we're fighting against a lot of different information that's out there. You are. You, you're correct. Um, but let me, let me ask you this. Someone tweeted one time, whenever Rose Scott says, let me ask you this, look out, but don't be afraid. Let me ask you this. If someone has not gotten a vaccine by now because of 
and it has nothing to do with maybe some other medical conditions, but they are just hesitant or they just are, for whatever reason, they just don't trust it. Do you think it's possible to, to change their mind, to get them to take the shot? Especially by now, you know, it's we're going into October of 2021. How much confidence do you have that at this point? You, you, you never you never say never. Rose, one of the common things we hear on the radio, and it's true, um, and we have clinicians who will tell you this, people who are unvaccinated now are the most prominent people who are dying with this COVID. And one of the last things that they discuss is they wish they had gotten the vaccination. That in and of itself from a family member would convince, can convince some folks. So not trying to use scare tactics, but we'll never give up. Our job is to continue uh, until we get enough folks vaccinated in this country that it won't matter if they don't want to get vaccinated today. They might think about it next year, but at least we're mostly protected from that herd immunity that you hear about, um, that you have so many people vaccinated to the point that um, the infection rates are null and void pretty much. So we just want to keep going and, and keep testing it and try to see, can we say something that will convince those people um, to go ahead and get vaccinated? Dr. Mack, as we begin to wrap up, how do you do that and then also not make folks feel like they're being shamed? I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who said, Rose, I feel like, you know, folks are unvaccinated, that we're being shamed a lot. And he said, I'm being honest with you, my man said, that ain't helping me change my mind. Right. It's, it's, it's the choice. It's their choice. And, and we definitely don't approach it in that manner. And I think everybody has a right. And just because you don't get vaccinated doesn't mean you're not a good person or you should be shamed. Um, we just continue to try to present the evidence of why you should be vaccinated. I told one person who was a friend of mine, mm -hmm. um, they didn't want to get vaccinated, but I had to remind them that well, they are protected because everybody else is vaccinated. Uh, your child, it was about their child. I mm -hmm. said, your child is protected because the other children are vaccinated. So not to shame, and we shouldn't do that, but we should continue to try to give the evidence um, because it is what we believe to be the truth. And it is for those who have helped protect and save, it is the truth. And we just want to pass that truth on others. As we wrap up, and then this is the question that everybody gets, and I ask them to look in their COVID-19 crystal ball, if you can. What is your hope where this nation will be at the end of the year heading into 2022? My hope is that the rates will continue to, to go down. Um, and I would say by this time next year, the hope is uh, we'd be in a much better place um, where we don't return doing every holiday, et cetera. Um, so that's the hope would be, I think people significantly getting vaccinated, more and more people are getting vaccinated. Um, I think the protection level within the country is increasing over time. Unfortunately, we, we will continue to have some um, morbidities and mortalities mm -hmm. along the way, but the hope is that we continue um, to decline um, without returning to these these times when we have these upticks. And then also, too, being able to take what we've learned with this pandemic. Well, 
I don't know many people who've had to learn that there were a lot of inequities and disparities when it comes to health and wellness in this nation. But, you know, for some people it was a surprise. But then turning the corner on how your community and how we address those inequities and those disparities. Because if a pandemic doesn't expose that, I don't know what else could, Dr. Mack. Rose, you're so right. You think about Hurricane Katrina, you think about any disasters, pandemics, it's really the same story. When they come, we're rushing to try to um, come up with tools to help these communities and we easily forget it after the pandemic or the disaster is gone. So we we want to make this platform, the National COVID-19 Resiliency Network, be able to pivot to other chronic illnesses and health-related problems within the community. But we need sustainable programs, past pandemics, emergencies and urgencies. We need pandemic planning for these disproportionately impacted communities, um, underserved communities, African-American community. We can't wait till the disaster comes and we're always behind because the past pandemics, that's what happened. As soon as it's over, we go back to square one. So we want to be different. All right, Dr. Dominic Mack from Morehouse School of Medicine's National Center for Primary Care. He he is head of the National COVID-19 Resiliency Network NCRN. It's an app, folks. Uh, we'll have a link to it on our website as well. Dr. Mack, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good seeing you, Rose. Same thank here. You. Menacing Bears. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. From one crisis to another, it could be the nation's most severe housing crisis in history. Evictions due to COVID-19, of course, in Fulton County. The funding is there. In fact, they received about $18 million so far through the United States Emergency Rental Assistance Program. And the purpose is pretty simple. It's to help give financial assistance to those eligible household, to those eligible households for rent, rent arrangements, utilities, everything involved with that. And keep this in mind now. We've been covering this here on Closer Look. And y'all keep emailing saying, what about my county? What about my my county? Well, now it's Fulton County's turn because now they're expanding on this. And joining me with more is Dr. Pamela Rochelle, Fulton's Deputy Chief Operating Officer for Health and Human Services. Dr. Rochelle, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me today. Let's begin here because we knew last year there was a report by the Aspen Institute which estimated 30 to 40 million people in the U.S. would be at risk for evictions. It's September 2021. Now, do you think that, how likely is that number to even be higher? I think it's very likely for that number to be higher. The economy is recovering, but slowly for many families. So unfortunately, many families are still finding themselves at risk of eviction and just unstable housing. You know, during the last Great Recession, around the 2008-2009 era, and we knew that Fulton and DeKalb and I believe Clayton, those are some of the counties that were at, that had high foreclosure rates. And now here, as we talk about the pandemic and you assess what's happening in Fulton County, have you been able to give a, an assessment and paint a snapshot of how many people are at risk here? So we launched our first application portal in March of this year. We had over 15,000 applications at that time. 
when we reopened our application portal on August 2nd, we've had over 10,000 applications. So clearly the need is there. We know that housing insecurity, as you've so laid out, has, has been an issue for a while and COVID has just exacerbated that, unfortunately. Let's go back to that first um, application process of that 15000 Were you mostly renters? Was it also eligible for landlords? How was that process working? So the funding that Fulton County received is for emergency rental assistance and utility assistance only. So the $18 million that we received is for households, families, individuals that live in Fulton County, but outside of the city of Atlanta. We've also received an additional $24 million because the federal government, U.S. Treasury specifically, knows that Fulton County is a high need area because of job loss here. So with this, with the round that y'all just opened August 2nd, is it the same process here? Take Make sure you're very clear for our listeners because they'll email yes. me. Yes. <laughs> well, we, we certainly want them to give us a call at 855-776-7912. We have application agents on hand. They can answer all of your questions. If you want to go straight to our application portal and apply, you may do so 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's at FultonCountyGA.gov forward slash rent help. That's FultonCountyGA.gov forward slash rent help. And there you can begin your application. You can even take a short quiz to ensure that you're eligible and it will give you all of the information that you need to get you on your way to assistance with rent and utilities. We provide support for rent arrears and three months of prospective rent or rent into the future. And I want to be clear again, and we'll have the numbers and links on our website as well, but I want to be really clear. This is for renters. Yes, renters. We, this is for renters. So if you have a lease, you're renting, paying a monthly rent to a landlord, then this is the program that you should look into to help you get caught up on your rent or if you've been caught up, but for, for whatever reason, you're now unable to perhaps pay future rent over the next two, one to three months, we can help you as well. Is there a service for landlords who might want to work with you all with their tenant or does it have to start with the tenant? That's a great question. So a landlord can initiate the application on behalf of a tenant. So either the tenant can start the application or the landlord. But we do ask for the support and cooperation of both because we need information from the landlord, such as how much the tenant is behind, verifying that there is a lease, that type of, of documentation. So yes, the landlord can initiate the application for one or multiple tenants. We have landlords that may have a, a housing complex with three or four, up to 20 or more tenants. They can initiate applications for every one of them. In that first round, Dr. Rochelle, uh, any idea how many folks you were able to help out of that 15000 or how much money you all were able to disperse? So in the first round, we dispersed approximately $10,000, which equated to approximately 2,000 households. 
we have since we've reopened the portal. Oh, wait, wait, I want to make sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you saying $10,000 per those households or just $10,000 no, no. in general? I'm sorry. I said 10,000, 10 million. I was going to say that. 10 million. You ain't help nobody. Like, oh my gosh, is that all? <laughs> no, no, no. T- 10 million in the first round. We, um, so yes, thank you for, for catching that. Um, so out of the 18, we've uh, awarded over 10 million. We've awarded the remaining funds as we have reopened our portal. So we've expended all of the money in our first round. We're, we're now into our 24 million. So you got an additional 24 million on top yes. of that 18. What does that say yes. to you? And, and Wow. Yes, that says the need is there, um, that the 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 families are still just in a in an unfortunate place. And because of that, our board of commissioners removed the cap. And what that means is in our first round of funding, we would pay your arrears, meaning you're behind on your rent, mm-hmm. up to nine thousand dollars. What we saw over the in the months after March is that it just wasn't enough. So we were basically paying a part of the bill that was outstanding, but not the entire bill. So now the board of commissioners will pay every single penny of your background up to, I saw 18,000 today where we're paying for a family's entire back rent. And this really will position families to stay housed and get back on their feet. You know, we start this conversation. I asked you about that that thirty to forty million projected uh, in terms of households that would be at risk for evictions, and and who knows what how long this pandemic is going to continue. Um, this extra twenty four million, y'all could run through that. Absolutely, absolutely. But guess what? There is a plan. So we work very closely with the Department of Community Affairs, and they have received close to $1 billion, with a B, dollars. I know I've had them on, but they've been a little slow and um, they're trying to catch up, want to be fair, because yeah. <laughs> they've been a little slow, yes. but I'll let you continue. So, yes. So once our Fulton County funds are exhausted, then individual families or families or individuals can get then go to the Department of Community Affairs for support. In your capacity as the Deputy Chief Operating Officer for Health and Human Services, and I imagine you, you in, all, in all your years of experience as well, you haven't experienced anything like this. But what, and I, maybe this is not the right terminology, so forgive me, in terms of lessons learned, but what are you mm-hmm. learning out of this in terms of what you all can do better or improve in the future? Now, you can't control the pandemic, obviously, doctor. I know that, so... Right. Oh, no. I think that's an outstanding question because we have learned a lot. Um, What we've learned is figuring out how to get this support out to families as quickly as possible, really using a disaster model. So the same way you see the disaster hit the streets, the disaster relief hit the streets Mm -hmm. quickly in like the Hurricane Ida situation that we really have to use a disaster model in order to ensure that we get these funds out quickly as possible while balancing it with what we're required to do as far as compliance and minimizing waste, fraud, and abuse. But using more of a disaster model 
is is what I would say was is one of the biggest lessons learned and really pulling out all the stops to make sure that we're as fast as we can be because it, it is a disaster. It, it's a crisis. Well, what mechanisms do you have in place to try to identify potential fraud or abuse of this system? I mean, listen, in the first stimulus, we were hearing that folks were getting millions and millions of dollars for businesses they didn't even have. They just made up a business. I mean, so how do you all ensure that you can, you know, flag any abuse or, or fraud and make sure that the funding is going to people who really need it? Yes. Um, and, and it's a balancing act because some of that, those mechanisms like checking the documentation, um, ensuring that we have proper ID, call, calls to landlords to verify that the, the, the facility or the apartment or home exists. So we are using those types of cross-reference checks to ensure that the person's real and the property is real and the lease agreement is, is real. And so those are the kinds of things that we do using some technology to make sure that these these funds are going to the people that really need it. And have you all had to increase your staff to handle these applications? 15,000 in the first round? That's a lot Absolutely. of personnel you need. Yes. We, we have, and we've entered into several great partnerships to assist with that. That was something else that we learned that the capacity to do this quickly, that the manpower just has to be there. And so Fulton County has invested to ensure that we have everything that we need to get these funds out as quickly as possible, above and beyond the 10% administrative fee that the Treasury allowed Fulton County invested additional dollars to add that staff capacity. Y'all still hiring because, you know, folks need jobs. Well, we are hiring in Fulton County in general. Absolutely. So I do encourage listeners who are looking for a full-time job because this is temporary based Mm -hmm. on the fact that we want to expend these funds quickly. But yes, we are hiring again and there are jobs available if you go to FultonCountyGA.gov and just search or Google careers, you'll see all of the jobs that are currently available. And as it relates to COVID-19, what are other resources in your area that you all are also working on, uh, Dr. Rochelle? So we are, of course, monitoring COVID every day very closely. We meet multiple times a week, a, a week just to keep our fingers on what the cases look like in Fulton County. And so we provide testing at multiple locations. We have teams that are going out into communities that the data is telling us have been less vaccinated than other areas of the county. And Mm -hmm. so we're trying to show up everywhere that we can to offer the opportunity to be vaccinated. Well, I just had a conversation with Dr. Dominic Mack from Morehouse School of Medicine in terms of he talked about not just messaging, but evaluating, you know, proper messaging. What are you all doing in Fulton County? to make sure that so, you're getting the right information to people. Partnerships, again, is, is a huge deal. We have found that partnering with trusted organizations and individuals, of course, the faith base is always a pillar. Some of the other nonprofits and other organizations that have a group of individuals that trust their voice and what they have to say. 
that's how we have have moved forward with making the vaccine available and answering questions. We know that there's a lot of misinformation, mistrust. And so every, everywhere that we can, we provide opportunities through town halls and through, again, on the ground, whether it's at your grocery store, um, beauty and barber supply, faith-based communities, festivals. Mm -hmm. We show up, we just had a concert the uh, last week of August to thank those that have been vaccinated and to encourage others to get vaccinated. Well, over in DeKalb County, they're giving out debit cards, which seem to do do the trick. Uh, perhaps you all, you all doing that? Are you offering some prepaid? Yes, yes. How much y'all offering? You're going to have to go so over 100 <laughs> I know, I know. So we're rolling out an incentive. We'll be announcing that tomorrow at our board of commissioners meeting. So yes, we are definitely on the same train with the incentives. They work and and whatever it takes, we're we're here for it. Now, don't just do 101 to be to be <laughs> better than the right cap, right? Yeah, or ninety nine and fifty cents. <laughs> no, it's a hundred. You said they're a hundred. They're a hundred. So, yeah, don't just yeah. do one hundred and one yeah. or one hundred and five. You don't you know? think one hundred two will do it? No, nah, give my folks two five. Give my folks in Fulton County two fifty, two fifty, as they say. <laughs> double it, double it, plus fifty. All right. Well, Doc, I'll definitely pass the word along. I'm sure uh, Chairman Pitts would love mm-hmm. that I gave that uh, suggestion. Yes, I'm going to say. Tell exactly. him Rose Scott said that. Yes, uh, on the air. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, Doctor Rochelle. As we wrap up, you'll get the same question. What do you hope will be going into 2022, and especially for your county, Fulton County, this pandemic? Well, I, I do hope that we will continue to see the economy recover. That individuals and families will either find prosperity through employment or self-employment starting a business, that we will see improved health across all sectors, across all age groups, and that even more people in Fulton County will trust the science and will get vaccinated and that we will start to enjoy uh, life in some ways that we, we have previously. All right, from your lips. Dr. Pamela Rochelle, Fulton County's Deputy Chief Operating Officer for Health and Human Services. We'll have links to the information regarding the rental assistance program. And again, this is for Fulton County renters outside the city of Atlanta and landlords as well. That's right. Thank you, Dr. Rochelle. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And before we say goodbye on this edition of Closer Look, I want to let you know that Closer Look did receive a statement from Georgia's Department of Corrections and as a response to that Department of Justice launching a civil rights investigation. The statement reads, we are committed to the safety of all the offenders in its custody and denies that it has engaged in a pattern or practice of violating their civil rights or failing to protect them from harm due to violence. We'll have more of the statement on our website. And also, WAB's Lisa Hagen will has more, will have more later today during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burrs. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As you know, I'm Rose Scott. And always, you know, you can download this 
because we're on a podcast just like everybody else. So wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcast, that's where we will be. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.